going to be reading a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more text than we usually do than we were in Philippians, uh, but uh, it's it's some it's fun. It's pretty excited about the narrative of Exodus and digging into it. So Exodus chapter one, and then we're going to read a little bit of chapter two. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I love that like little burn right there. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. During those many days, The king of Egypt died. This is skipping ahead to chapter two. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. If you join me, it's a pray, preaching of God's word. Father, we... Thank you uh, for just the immense storehouse of your word and and all the history and the poetry and the wisdom and everything in it, um, that you are God who is not silent, but is speaking and speaking a word that continues to be living and active. And so we pray we might 
experience that tonight by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you might uh, be at work in our hearts, uh, convicting us of the things that we need to be convicting us of, giving us hope, encouraging us through what we see here in this ancient history of your people. And we pray that all this would, would cause uh, our lives to be changed and to bear fruit and, and that we might both know Christ more and, and glorify him more uh, throughout uh, our time here at Wofford. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over interim, uh, I got re-obsessed with one of my favorite filmmakers, Wes Anderson. Does anyone actually know who Wes Anderson is? Like, if you want to, if you, like, are like, what, what should I talk to Oliver about? Like, just go look up Wes Anderson and watch a bunch of movies and then come and talk to me about him. Uh, so he's done a few movies like The Royal Tenenbaums, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Grand Budapest Hotel. He has a, he has a very distinct style, uh, and I just, like, went through on all the streaming services that we had access to, and I was just like, I just, I, I want to watch more and more of this. Like, I cannot stop. And at one point, I got so deep in my Wes Anderson obsession that I actually, like, started watching this YouTube video that was, like, all about his filmmaking and what was distinctive about it. I mean, there's, like, 2.5 million views on this video, so it's not, it's not that niche. But uh, it really was an intriguing video, uh, because the, the YouTuber, he was this filmmaker himself, and he, he does a lot of stuff just commenting on uh, the, the whole filmmaking process. He pointed out how Anderson, in contrast to most filmmakers, doesn't strive for realism. He, he actually wants you to be aware of the fact that you are watching a film, that you are in the middle of the story that has been constructed uh, and there's different ways in all of his movies this kind of happens, like the Royal Tenenbaums, the transitions make it look like it's like you're like in this novel, uh, like it opens up in the beginning and you even have like the little library card thing. That's so dated. Do you guys even know what that is? Or you have the little, you put the dates from the library thing. Um, the film Rushmore, it like has uh, curtains that come over and like make the transition. So it, it feels like you're in the middle, you're, you're watching a play. Uh, the, the film Life Aquatic is this documentary film within a film. And then my, my favorite one, I'm waiting for this to come back on some streaming service, Moonrise Kingdom has like a narrator that, there we go, Moonrise Kingdom, one shout out. Um, the narrator like talks to the camera, like it is very clear, this is a story, nobody's trying to hide that fact and, and give you this illusion uh, that you know, you're in this completely real scenario. Anderson wanted his fingerprints all over his creation. He, he went out of his way to present his films as a story with a storyteller. And, and even more than that, he puts himself in it. There's a, another film, last one I'll mention, Dar The Jarjling. I can't I say it wrong. Kim got on to me about pronouncing this when I said it earlier. Darjeeling Unlimited. It's anyway... I, I, it's, a, it's a film about these three brothers that basically go on this train ride through India together and they're like on, on a pilgrimage, like trying to have enlightenment. Well, the, the people that wrote the script for that film, they actually did the same thing. And they were three people. They went on this trip together. And then the actual cast and crew, when the film was being, was being done, they did the same thing. They were traveling around on this train in India. They became 
characters in this story too. And so, and so the question is that the whole video was leading to what, why is Anderson doing this? Why is he making films this way? Especially when most films aren't done this way. And the, the YouTube, uh, this YouTuber, he doesn't give a clear answer, but he closes his video with this enigmatic moment that is from an interview that Wes Anderson did where somebody asks him in your filmic universe, is there a God and if so, does God stand aloof or does he intervene? And Anderson pauses for a really long time. And then he says, God intervenes. Why did Anderson make his films that way? I, I think his response here shows that he had a deep longing to be in a world where the, with a creator that was a part of it, with a creator that would intervene. A world where the creator was not a loof, but a character in his creation. And I think every one of us tonight, somewhere within us, we have the same longing, but we find ourselves stuck in that long pause. Life has made us doubtful. And, and even cynical about this idea that, that God would really intervene. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, the majority of, of us in this room probably believe God is real. We, we were like, how can this complex, beautiful world exist w- without some kind of designer? But we aren't sure he cares about it anymore. We're, we're not sure we can actually count on him. We see the tragedy and suffering that, that happens to us and happens to those close around us. We see the fact that he doesn't prevent our parents from getting divorced or getting cancer. He doesn't stop the loneliness and depression and anxiety that's within our own hearts. He seems fine to allow all kinds of evil to exist in this world. And so we pause too for a long time when we faced with that question, does God stand aloof or does he intervene? And that's really the question here at the beginning of Exodus. The God of the Bible, is he a God who sees and knows what his people are going through and he is going to do something about it or not? And we're gonna, the way we're going to look at that uh, in this text is, is to wrestle with, one, God's seeming absence here, and then also to work on what would it look like to trust and notice God's promised presence. So first, God's seeming absence. And the author of Exodus, Moses, he, he brings this issue to the forefront by just throwing us headlong into the story of God's people at this point in biblical history. It kind of starts, if you notice as we read it, just very abruptly we learned the heads of Israel, these 12 sons of Jacob, who their story kind of fills out the, the latter end of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Um, they've all died. Uh, and Genesis itself had ended with this big crescendo of like, God had delivered Jacob and his sons. He had provided for them. He had done this miraculous work through Joseph and him rising up in the ranks of Egypt. And at first, and after that, you know, the descendants of Jacob's sons are doing pretty well. They've been placed in this situation of great blessing. Whether they're aware of it or not, they are experiencing the fruit of their forefathers' covenant relationship with God. They are being fruitful and multiplying. They're, they're fulfilling God's original creation mandate to Adam and Eve, and then also his promise to 
Abraham. And everything seems to be going great until verse 8. We have this new Egyptian king who, get, who gains power, and he doesn't give a rip about Joseph. That's really what it means when it's saying he doesn't know him. He knew who he was. He was such a prominent political figure. It was more like, I, I don't care about this guy. Doesn't care about Joseph and, and all that happened with him to deliver the people of Israel. Rather than seeing what happened with them as a blessing, their multiplication is this potential threat that he needs to shut down. And though his first attempt doesn't really work out, uh, that only causes Pharaoh to double down. It, it's interesting there in verse 13 uh, and 14, the word that's translated work or slavery or serve in that passage, it appears seven times. It's as if the Egyptians are like, we are going to perfect this process of oppressing the Israelites of God's people. It was like, and it was for Israel. Every moment of their lives now was work, 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 work. And not in the sense of that like Rihanna song. I think it's, is it Rihanna? I don't know. Um, Isn't that what life often feels like? Everything is work, all, all the time. There's something else that I could be working on. And, and it feels out of our control. The, though we don't have literal taskmasters over us, unless you count your professors, I think we're all familiar of this, with this emotion of feeling enslaved. I mean, maybe that is what is your tax, taskmaster right now, your professor, just this academic semester as a whole. Like, you have seen your syllabus, you've got a sense of like, okay, these are all the labs, these are all the projects, these are all the tests, these are all the papers before me, and you are like, how in the world am I going to get this done? Am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to actually graduate and move on to the next step of my career, the next class I need to get to that further place in my career? And you feel as if you must spend every possible free moment studying if you're going to satisfy this taskmaster. And maybe for other of us, uh, it, we feel in bondage to the expectations of those around us. Our, our social life and our relationships feel that way. We feel addicted to getting the approval of, of our peers and of our parents. We have this constant pressure to fit in, to be doing what others are doing. Uh, we, it's really hard for us to walk in a room and not be thinking about how are other people perceiving me? Do they like me? And maybe you go to bed at night and you're like rehearsing that thing you said that you, you think that person just, they misunderstood you. You had this awkward interaction with them. You wonder if maybe people are talking behind your back. Or maybe you just feel this pressure even socially to just be like maximizing your life, having like all the fun in the world, not missing out on anything. Like you've got to have the time of your life right now. You've got to get out there and meet new people and network because this is like the only chance you're going to have to do that. And, and maybe one other thing I, I think that is common for a lot of people uh, to feel this slavery is in the realm of sexuality. It, maybe you feel trapped in an unhealthy relationship or, or you're even addicted, have, is secretly addicted to pornography. Maybe you 
you feel that slavery of I'm with this person, but I can't, I just can't seem to get away from them. You feel overcome with shame when you look at something and you just want to be done with this, but you can't get away with it. You try to manage it, but often it feels far more like the addiction is managing you than you're managing it. One way or another, I think we have all experienced that. And take a moment, think about how do you feel in that and what is your relationship to God when you're in this moment of feeling like you're in bondage? What are your thoughts of him? I, I know for me, when I've had those moments, it's, it's just practical atheism or deism. I, I, I'm living, I'm acting as if God doesn't care. He is a wolf. He is not going to intervene. He's not present. It's up to me to make the best out of this situation. Worst of all, maybe sometimes, and maybe for some of you, especially given the church backgrounds you grew up in, God himself is the taskmaster. Christianity, when you think about it, it's like, Work, 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 like more prayer, more Bible reading, more church attendance, more evangelism, more worship music, more volunteering, more sacrifice. The Bible argues that this state of slavery that we see here in Israel really is this profound picture of our entire spiritual condition as human beings. Uh, we, if you're at Grace Pres this Sunday, we actually talked about that. Jesus, uh, in John chapter 8, tells all these very religious people, you are slaves to sin. And they are, like, deeply offended about that. Um, but this is the Bible's dominant metaphor for what humanity is naturally in, the state they are in, apart from God. Slavery is what happens when we forget our covenant God, we don't cry out to him. You know, it's, it's not explicitly there in the text, but the, the first chapter just has this curious silence regarding the people and their relationship with God. There's no mention of the Israelites crying out, asking God to intervene. It seems as if the Israelites have just kind of resigned to accept the situation. Pharaoh is our God now. We're going to serve him functionally. And I think we are so often the same way. We slowly forget God. We assume he's absent. We settled for the bondage, whatever it is that we're in. And we fail to long for freedom and to cry out to God. And so the question is, does God see us in this state? Will he show up and do something about it? And as absent as God does seem in the beginning of this passage, in reality, his, his fingerprints are all over this story. They're all over this situation. They, they might have initially felt like God is so absent, but his, his promised presence is in and around everything they're going through. And the same is true for us. And that's we're going to move on to our second point, God's promised presence. I, I recently heard this really crazy story about this missionary. Uh, his, his name, we'll call him Curtis. He was doing missionary work in a city in Southeast Asia. And one day he's in this very rough part of town and he is waiting to pick someone up. And there's this guy 
about maybe 20 feet in front of him that just gets on his cell phone and is talking. And then all of a sudden, these two other guys come up on, like, dirt bikes and start trying to steal this guy's phone from him. And he's, like, watching this whole thing, and eventually he sees one of the guys. He, like, goes and grabs, like, this giant bike lock that was almost, like, the size of a crowbar. And he's, like, clearly going to try to beat this guy to just take his phone from him. And, and stop for a second. What, what, do you, what would you do in that situation? What would, what would your instinct? Karate chopping. <laughs> Karate chopping. Well, I mean, then you might like what Curtis does. Curtis was so mad, he jumps out of the car, and he just starts praying, and he's like, God, don't let me miss, don't let me miss, don't let me miss, and, and the guy hasn't seen him yet, and Curtis just ends up running and lunging at this guy and tackling him, and he gets him pinned to the ground, and the other guy like runs off, and Curtis looks at this guy that he's got pinned down on the ground, and he says, God sees everything. <laughs> and then as they're waiting for the police, he proceeds to share the gospel with them and talk about the hope that can be found in mercy in Jesus. <laughs> what Curtis told that thief, like, is the hope that is just all over the Bible. God sees everything. He's not a wolf. He, he, like Curtis, is intervening. He's promised to protect and bless his people. And we see it in so many ways uh, in these opening chapters of Exodus. And he sees us and our suffering and our slavering, slavery to sin. And he's actively working to protect and deliver us. But So the first way I think we see this is just in the fact that they are fruitful. Like God is keeping his promises. They Abraham is having many sons. God is making a great nation out of Abraham, just like he said. And even when Pharaoh initially tries to stop it, you notice there in the text, it says it only caused it to multiply more. They just kept spreading. He couldn't stop it. Why? Because God was at work. He knows what's going on. He sees what's going on. He is behind the scenes powerfully, wisely preserving and protecting his people, governing all the actions of all his creatures. Uh, and, and when a real threat rises, he raises up help and ways to stop it. And, and remember, all of this is happening before there's any mention of them crying for help. God is already at work he, doing this immediate deliverance through the midwives, and then even, really, that's what the, I think is the purpose of Moses' story in chapter 2. He's, he's already on the way preparing this greater deliverance before they have even asked for it. He, he is already, he is ready, he's planning to tackle Pharaoh to the ground to pin him and to stop the oppression of his people. And, and I, that is such an amazing thing about God, that he is already at work accomplishing, setting up the events for his people's deliverance before they cried out. He sees and knows you even before you see and know him. And I think 
as that sinks down into our bones, there are two practical ways uh, that that changes our life. As we get and, and see God's promised presence in our lives, um, one, we realize we need to cry out, and two, that we can be agents of God's intervention and promised presence in the world. Look, look again at chapter 2 at the end there, um, at verse 23. Again, this is the, the first time we hear the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and then God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Why, why didn't it say that at the beginning of the story? Like, why, why do we have to wait all the way to the end of chapter 2 to hear that? Well, I think it's because... It's only at chapter two. It's only after years and years. It's possibly 400 years of slavery. Do the people actually get serious about crying out to God to do something? Uh, They were content in their slavery. And then finally something happened. They are not content anymore. And the moment they get there, God is just so ready to meet them in that discontentment. So does life feel like slavery to you? If that's the case, do you settle for the fact that God seems to be absent or do you cry out to him to show up, to help, to intervene, to do something? I think it's so easy for us to just accept this is the way things are. This is just how life is going to be. College is just going to be this way. I'm just always going to be totally overwhelmed and anxious and just stressed out about all this stuff. God is just over there. Maybe he's real, but he's not going to do anything. And so I'm just going to put my head down, get this done, numb myself with distractions. If there's one thing I could change about every one of us here, just tweak it a little bit more, including myself, it would be that we would start crying out more sincerely, more often to God, to do something about the areas in our lives where we still feel bondage. Some of us wonder, like, why why is God allowing all these difficult things in my life? Why does he seem so absent? But maybe that very situation you are in, God has put you there because he's trying to get you to the breaking point of actually crying out to him. He's allowed you to experience this slavery in your schoolwork or in your relationships with friends or family or social life because he's trying to get you to see and cry out, cry out about a much bigger problem, this deeper reality of your slavery to sin. And this text is just giving us this amazing promise in the midst of that we're not powerless. We don't have to settle for the ways that we're approaching our schoolwork and our, and our future career that are maybe unhealthy or we're, the way we're so obsessed with the approval of others the, or how we approach our sexuality and our desire to be known and loved, we don't have to settle for bondage. If we would only cry out, God is ready to respond, to be there with his promised presence, to do something about it. And even more, he's already working His Spirit's already breaking into our lives and causing us to stir us up to that point of crying out to Him. 
But there's one more uh, application before we finish up here um, that I think is very important, is that God uses ordinary, weak, marginalized people to actually be partakers, agents of his promised presence, his intervening in the world. I mean, who does God use to deliver his people from literally, I mean, it's a genocide. Shipra and Puah, these Hebrew midwives, outsiders and women, the lowest status people in society are literally taking on the highest status. Like Pharaoh was almost viewed as a god. I shouldn't say almost. He was viewed as a god. And God himself, he could have appeared and just been like, boom, tackled Pharaoh, took him out. But he doesn't do that. He uses the wisdom and cunning and even that like sarcasm of these like poor working class women to protect his people. And so that's such great news to us as well, that God does not need you to have a certain level of status, to have it together, to be powerful or cool, to work powerfully through you. If we fear him, over this world, if we trust him in the midst of the brokenness that we see around us and the bondage we experience in our own hearts, he is so ready and willing to work through us. As we begin to understand and rest in the fact that he sees and knows us, we start becoming those who see and know others around us. So like Shipra and Pua and Curtis, we become the very means by which God intervenes, by which he tackles evil and takes it down. And it's risky to do this. That's why I think we often really don't want to do it. We don't want to stand up. We don't want to say things. But there's such great reward. I mean, we see that here in verses 20 and 21, that they, they're rewarded with families, that God takes care of them and protects them, that they literally, they thwart the plans of the most powerful person in, in society. And, and as we think about what, what God is doing through these women, I think you, maybe you're already thinking about it. You can't help but start to think of Jesus. This is just the way God works. When he comes to finally fully deliver his people in the new Exodus through Jesus in the New Testament, it's the same pattern. God delivers his people through weakness, through taking the form of a servant. I mean, Jesus was literally born into this like exact same context. Like they were, Herod was trying to kill off all these Israelite children. He wanted to take out Jesus. Read about that in, Ma- in Matthew chapter two. And, and at that point, Jesus's family, where do they flee? They flee to Egypt uh, to fulfill the prophecy of Hosea that out of Egypt, I called my son. And so we're reminded this whole story of Exodus is ultimately the story of Jesus. Jesus comes to finish the work of Shifra and Puah and Moses. And he's going to save us not only from some physical enslavement, but from this deep soul bondage that alienates us from God and from each other. But he did this by becoming a slave, by being crushed by the rulers. He fled Herod as a child, 
But he would ultimately go back and give himself up to the authorities that wanted to destroy him. That he would not only know and see our suffering and understand it, but he himself would be willing to dive headfirst into it so that he might bring it to an end once for all. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus, the son of God, he really is the ultimate confirmation that God does intervene. God does see, God does know, and he will do this even at infinite cost to himself. Let me, let me close us in prayer. Father, we praise you that you are a God who sees and knows, uh, that you remember us, you hear us, you are faithful to your promises. We pray that that very reality would just sink deep into our hearts and would, would cause us, when we feel the pressure of life, when we feel in bondage and we feel enslaved, it would cause us, rather than to retreat away from you and to go into distraction and to pursue other gods, we instead would cry out to you to do something about it, to intervene. And we pray that as we do that, we would be changed ourselves into people who know and see others and want to be agents of your presence in their life, intervening and bringing healing and wholeness and blessing and protection as well. We pray you might do all these things through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can stand and sing. Last song.